Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 127 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan is the sound recordist. Hello. Oh. Hello. Hello, everyone. I'm a little hot on the mic. Dylan's always hot on the mic, by which I mean handsome on the mic. Aww. Wow. A lot of our wedding pictures, well, not a lot. There's some that look like Toby's marrying Dylan, and I appreciate that. Yeah. There's a lot of loving glances (laughs) and casting. We took those for backup just in case. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but spooky season. Has anybody been reading anything spooky? I have not, and I, I need to get on it. Yeah, what the heck are you doing, Bailey? Once it hits November 1st, you're not allowed to be scared for another 11 months. Exactly. Yeah, it's rough. And you do love your horror books. I'm surprised you're not reading something for a spooky season. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I feel like 80% of the last two read list books have been horror books you've been reading. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. I just haven't, wasn't reading that much the past two weeks. Basically, this book I finished last night slash this morning. I don't know. We were just behind. We had a lot of housework to do. We had to turn in our car and get a new car on the lease. It's not interesting. It was just boring and expensive. So anyway, I haven't been doing it. That's the real spooky thing. Wow, that is a good summer of the past two weeks of just boring and expensive. Boring and expensive. Adult responsibilities. Student loans returning. (laughs) (laughs) The real terror. Anyway, I'm reading Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. Misspelling. Sometimes dead is better. (laughs) Sometimes dead is better. It annoys me that in the trailer for the new one, which is like a prequel story, origin story of that guy, he doesn't have a main accent. Mm. What? That's like his whole thing. I know. I haven't seen this trailer. Uh, Well, I have. It's like um, Pet Cemetery Origins or something, and it's it's that story of the John Lithgow guy, and he doesn't have a main accent. Interesting, but like... Was that movie good enough to need a prequel? It made a lot of money. The, the recent remake did? Yeah, it did. It did? Yeah. But at the end of this trailer, he just says, sometimes dead is better. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> is he like Gen Z? He's like, sometimes dead is better. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> is this your first time reading it, Toby? Are you liking it? Yes, it is. It is my first time reading it. Um, I am really enjoying it. I think it's really good. There has been, I think, a bit of stuff floating about the internet recently. Um, and it's not news because Stephen King said it a long time ago. But apparently this is what he rates as his scariest book. Mm. Um, but kind of tying into adult responsibilities. And I don't want to do too many spoilers for the book or the movie if you haven't seen them. But he basically says, you know, like monsters and all the stuff he's come up with, all the horrifying things he's imagined are really bad. But when you are an adult and when you are specifically a parent, the scary contents of Pet Cemetery are what really freaks him out the most. And the fact that he kind of came up with the pretty messed up stuff that happens in Pet Cemetery freaks him out. He's like, oh, where did that come from? Yeah, I get it. Stuff I used to enjoy, I don't enjoy so much when children are in peril. Not very mm-hmm, fun mm-hmm. anymore now that I'm a yeah. mom. But yeah, honestly, I'm really enjoying it. It is like vintage Stephen King. It's real. He's just like on the top of his game. We're in backwoods, rural Maine, firing <laughs> on all cylinders. <laughs> Love it. Loving it. I think I will start reading a spooky book today just to hold myself accountable. Andrew, what are you doing for spooky season? I've, I've been reading a spooky book or two of my own. Let's see, adult mm. responsibilities. Um, <laughs> I mean, is it a adult responsibility to take a job as a governess at Bly Manor in, in the turn of the screw, which I read. Oh, <laughs> how'd you like it? <laughs> I liked it. It was, um, it obviously is the basis for the haunting of Bly Manor, which is a TV show I had already watched. So there wasn't a lot of surprise except for the fact that obviously the Flanagan verse modernized it and, and changed <laughs> a lot of it, but I liked it. Uh, and then I started reading and I'm still reading from hell, which is a graphic novel. Ooh, I want to read that one by Alan Moore um, about an explanation for the Jack the Ripper murders. Hmm? Which Masons. is that he's an angel. So uh, I'm checking that out. I've been trying to create ambiance when I've been reading. I posted a picture on Instagram sort of with that, but like I've been trying to like dim the lights and like light candles and Jillian has a hue light, which you can make different colors. So I've been playing around with that to make a spooky reading even spookier. Ooh. 
Do you know what you should do, Andrew? I don't know if this is the same hue light, but Louise and I had one of those, and you could link it to your smartphone. <laughs> and the most insane, useless feature that I can't believe they included on the app was a feature where you could link it to your smartphone and to the microphone in your phone so that every time you spoke, it would fluctuate colors based on your speaking voice. So it would just <laughs> wildly flicker through like a hundred different colors as you spoke at it. <laughs> so yeah, you should do that. You should have <laughs> should try Jillian like mutter nonsense into the phone while you're reading and it just flickers. You should do that and not tell Jillian that you've installed it so that we can speak to her from (laughs) the other room. Sometimes rave is better. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, are you going to watch the Fall of the House of Usher that just came out? uh, Yes, I am. I'm very excited about watching that, in fact. Why don't you ask me if I'm going to watch it? Because I talked about the Flanagan-averse. I feel left out. I'm going to watch it, too. (laughs) Me, too. Look, we're all part of the Flan clan. I'm going to watch it first. (laughs) I will say it feels very uh, synchronicity is synchronous. It feels very synchronous um, because I'm just about to finish um, The Reason for the Darkness of the Night, which is the book I'm the biography of Edgar Allan Poe. I'm about to finish that book, which is pretty good. It's a little boring at the end, but uh, I've learned a lot more about Edgar Allan Poe than I ever knew before. You just bought that one. I know. Doing good. Okay. Um, I guess speaking of, does anybody have any shame? I don't. I do not. (laughs) Forceful. I don't as well, despite going into the Golden Notebook and Rough Draft this week. Wow. Wow. Jillian needed books and I avoided getting any. You just looked at them and just didn't buy any? Wow. Toby, Mm. shame? No shame. It's a zero shame episode. Wow. We can all look at each other and we can all look at ourselves in the mirror or each other. We can all look at our computers as we record this podcast in different areas. (laughs) Pedro's, I don't know if you know this, but when you record a podcast with a group of friends, you actually end up sharing an image. So if you stare in the mirror, you see them behind you at all times, even if you're Mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. opposite sides of the country. If you say bloody Mm -hmm. Bailey three times, (laughs) a Barnes and Noble bathroom. If you you say books, books, books in the mirror. Yeah. That's good. Like I said, I've been doing all these boring adult things. One exciting thing is our daughter is very into Disney princesses now. Oh, God. Which Mm. is interesting to revisit all these movies that I hadn't seen in decades. But I just like Maggie's approach to the princesses. She's very interested in in Encanto. She wants me to talk like the strong lady, a.k.a. Louisa. She likes the strong Mm -hmm. lady. That is the best song. It is the best song. Um, But then in general, like she, grandma, Dylan's mom has been giving her lots of princess dolls and I've been getting into it because it's a collection and you know I love a collection. Oh no. Oh no. But every time Maggie gets one, she's like, she's moving in. And then she's like, they're sisters. They're getting married to each other. (laughs) If you're going to get into collecting, what would be like the rarest doll out of all the Disney, like which is the least loved of the Disney princesses? My heart says Rose from Sleeping Beauty because she's kind of boring. Um, her name is Aurora. Um, oh, whoops. <laughs> well, wait. Evidence, evidence right there. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Is there one called Rose? No. 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 Um, a Rosa. A, uh, a Rosie? I don't know. A Rose Compoyo. Rosie O'Donnell? <laughs> I would guess Snow White. No, she's the first one. No, pe- people love Snow White. Yeah, yeah. but she, I don't know. I think I hit the nail on the head with Aurora. Now that I've literally have a lineup of them. She doesn't have Jane from Tarzan, Meg from Hercules, or... Um, They're not princesses. Esmeralda. Yeah, Neither... is Jane a freaking princess? I don't Mirabelle think so. Mirabelle from Encanto isn't a princess either. I know, she wasn't part of the but collection. But she's part of the ruling family. That's Belle true. isn't a princess. <laughs> yes, she is. She marries royalty. Uh, yeah, he's true. a prince. What are you talking about? She's a beast. Wake up, Dylan. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> I don't. But Toby, I think you're right. Aurora, based on the fact that I did not know her name was Aurora and you could not remember it, does suggest that maybe the zeitgeist has moved on from her specifically, mm-hmm. if not Maleficent. Mm-hmm. People well, love Maleficent more than her at this point. That's true. Yeah. I'm excited for Maggie to get an Esmeralda doll so that way Bailey can explain to her the true story of Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> <laughs> about, all about the sewer system. <laughs> Jolly's there. The rest is bad. (laughs) (laughs) The rest is not great. Um, Well, no, as a kid being born in the 80s, we had princesses, but we only had three, really. It was Aurora, Cinderella, and Snow White. I don't know her. Yeah. (laughs) And then the other ones were added as we grew up. So when I was little, I insisted on being addressed as Aurora at preschool. So, you know, some people are Aurora stands. Mm -hmm. You're an OG is what you're saying. What about Maggie's favorite princess of Jafar? 
Maggie does sympathize with Jafar, and that's a little weird. <laughs> a Jafar apologist. Well, when Jasmine marries Jafar, when she's distracting him, do they kiss? And he goes, oh. She's like, yay. <laughs> anyway, so that's what's going on in our lives. Speaking of what's going on in your life, Andrew, have you read a book recently? <laughs> Why, yes, I have. I read a book that was assigned to me by Dylan. I hope it wasn't too, <laughs> you know, hard to read, too tough. <laughs> uh, I love when you can see a pun from five miles away <laughs> and you just have to wait for it to get to you. Um, but yes, I read Tough by Paul Beatty. Are you tough enough? Rub some dirt in it. Tough, yeah. Um, so here's a little paragraph to get you situated. Because I don't know how many people uh, listening to this podcast would have heard of or read this book. I'm not sure how popular it is. In Tough by Paul Beatty, Winston Tuffy Fauché is unsatisfied with his life and prospects living in Spanish Harlem. Large both physically and by reputation, the life of scraping by with criminal hustles and side jobs leads him to seek help in the form of a big brother. Never mind that Winston is 22. In an attempt to get his life turned around and buffered by a supporting cast of memorable characters, Winston takes a big leap and runs for city council. Ultimately, Tough is a novel about growth and maturity, the complicated love one feels for where they come from, and the people that shape you. Interesting. Mm. So to give you a little more context here, when I say big brother, I literally mean big brother, little brother, big sister, little sister system. At 22, he calls and gets a big brother (laughs) to come help him out. Yeah. So it's sort of hard to describe the plot of this book because a lot of it is less about things that happen and just sort of spending time with colorful characters in strange situations, which seems to Mm -hmm. be something that Paul Beatty really likes. For those who maybe haven't heard of Paul Beatty or don't know a lot about his work, he's written a few novels. His most, I don't know if it's his most recent novel, but it's his most recent large novel, The Sellout, was well received. It won the Man Booker Prize and the National Book Award. And I read that book relatively recently earlier this year. And then I had read one of his first novels, The White Boy Shuffle, back in college. I have a fairly good sense of his sort of oeuvre. And he loves this blend of surrealism and like hyper characterization and like incredibly heightened um, situations. He, he does that in all of them. Anywho, I'll try to give you a little more plot here. Tuffy lives in, in Spanish Harlem with his wife and son. The book starts with him like peeling himself off a floor in an apartment in Brooklyn with three dead bodies around him, where he is the, the one of two survivors of two rival drug running groups shooting the other one up. Wow, what a hmm. beginning. Yeah. And you'd think that that would uh, feature more prominently, but it kind of is, it's the instigator for him to sort of start to turn his life around, but he doesn't dwell on it all too much. And he goes back to Spanish Harlem where he feels more comfortable with his friend Farik, who's the other survivor, who's a a five percenter black Muslim, pretty anti-Semitic guy who's also got like every medical issue in the world. And they go up and he decides he wants to turn his life around. He sees an ad on TV for Big Brothers Big Sisters and he calls and he gets his big brother whose name is Spencer. And he is a black rabbi who converted for his wife who left him before they were married. Oh boy. To give you a break, Andrew, I read The Sellout and you couldn't pay me to try and summarize what that book yeah. is about. So I think you're doing an admirable job. It is very similar in that, because I think Beatty, to his credit, is not really concerned with plot. He is concerned with creating ideas through these situations and characters, and that's yeah. fine. But it makes it hard to summarize. Ultimately, he it leads him to running for city council, which is something he doesn't really care about that much, but it's like something to do. <laughs> that's sort of the, the main arc of the book. That's all you need to know. let's go into orcs and elves okay (laughs) so elves it is very well paced and it is propulsive it um probably is around it's around 270 pages in my edition and it reads as a much shorter book despite having very small type Mm. especially because the book is also like super episodic in terms of like this chapter they're going to this place that is like a big swing in terms of being an interesting place with a lot of new people there's a sumo wrestling demonstration they go to like each chapter it's sort of like kind of like the odyssey in a small way where like it's like this is a big situation and you're going to get a lot of context and then we're going to move on. So it makes it really easy to read because there's like a natural excitement to that. The Odyssey, you say. Interesting. Mm, mm. Interesting. Ah, elect. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll see what happens later. Um, and the characters and situations that Beatty creates are really memorable. Like I've mentioned Farik Spencer, Inez, and Winston's dad. They're all like these huge characters who really pop off the page 
Um, they have a lot of detail around them that makes them really exciting. And it makes for this sort of surrealistic landscape that just kind of sticks in your brain, which is similar to other of uh, Beatty's books. Mm-hmm. Um, and one last elf is that Winston, though you're not always like on board with what he's doing, is a very compelling and interesting main character with a really unique quality in that he seems to be sort of immune from like self-doubt and like worry. So he like plows forward into situation, gets himself in trouble and things and like recognizes things as good and bad, but like doesn't dwell on being like, oh crap, I messed that up, which like I feel like single protagonist novels oftentimes sort of get mired down by and he did not and mm. does not. Mm-hmm. So those are my elves. <laughs> okay. okay. And let's go to are. the orcs. Uh-oh. My main orc is, I don't know, man. <laughs> so, so little happens in this book with so much spaghetti being thrown at the wall. There's a scene at the end where Tuffy and his wife are watching a movie and his wife is mad that nothing's happening in the movie. And he is like, the point is what isn't happening. And I think that's sort of baby justifying what happened in the book. <laughs> but, um, and I just feel like if it worked and held together, you wouldn't need that scene to justify it. Yeah. Mm. Like you would get that sense without the author telling you it. I don't want to be uncharitable because yeah. I respect Paul Beatty. I'm not sure this one was for me. That makes sense to me just based on your synopsis. Like that totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So like to drill down into a few more orcs here. It's over halfway through the book that that plot kicks in. The book is only 270 pages. And even though that is the plot point when he starts to run for city council, it's not, is it really the plot? Like, is that really (laughs) what this book is about? Like, I'm being unkind. I'm not being unkind about this next orc, which is that there's a lot of dead animals. And so if that bothers you, maybe Mm. avoid some stuff. Yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. Well, we know Toby can handle dead animals. (laughs) And so... That one is like a cut and dry orc for me because um, it also doesn't really add to the book. It just feels like shock factor for shock factor's sake. Mm-hmm. This one is a little more complicated. It's that the prose is like exciting and acrobatic, but it also just feels like too much sometimes. And I don't know where this book fell in his sort of um, writing thing because I didn't really have this one so much about the sellout or about White Boy Shuffle, but this one felt like he was going real hard on a system that he hadn't maybe refined yet. Mm -hmm. And I have a quote about it, and I'll let you make your own judgment on it. So uh, just so you know what's happening, he's returned to Brooklyn, I believe, for the first time since he um, narrowly survived that shooting there. And he's walking sort of nervously, and that's what's happening as this quote happens. He took corrective measures. He truncated his gait and slowed his pace to a chain gang plod. The appropriate amount of bounce was applied to his ditty bop, just enough spring in his step to rock his torso and head in an autistic half beat. His shoulders rolled so that his arms paddled stiffly through the humid air like oars on a cruising Phoenician warship. He rearranged his face in a no scowl. Eyebrows cinched tight like zipper teeth. Eyes squinted, jaw jutted to a position not seen on a hominid since Homo erectus. That's a lot of purple prose. Yeah, it's it's a lot. So I wonder where, again, I'll just sort of spoil something here. I like the white boy shuffle and the sellout more than this, but I'm just not sure that Paul Beatty is an author that like gets me going. Mm. Well, I'll tell you real quick, if this gives you some information, white boy shuffle was his first book out in 96. This is his second novel out in 2000. And then the sellout came out in 2015. Yeah. So it's a lot of time in between it to like, mm-hmm. I don't know, you're 15 years older at that point. Um, so maybe you change your writing style a little bit. There's also just Paul Beatty likes to do something. And this is maybe an indication of uh, him sort of maturing because I don't think he does this in the sellout which is just sort of inserting things he likes into books. Mm. For example, there's a whole bunch on like Japanese culture in film, which I don't know that they super need to be in the book, but they're there. Um, he also loves just throwing in sort of inexplicable attraction between people just being like, no, of course this main character is loved by this person, even though you've sort of described them as unsavory in a lot of ways. <laughs> and he, you know, he has a bag and he, and he, and he, and he does it. Um, <laughs> I think that Paul Beatty is really an intelligent writer. I just think that, you know, sometimes your tastes don't align. And I'm not saying that as like, this is bad. It's just, I'm not like going to be clamoring to buy Paul Beatty's next book, unfortunately. Fair. Fair. And I think I heard similar things about the sellout. It was kind of a love it or hate it from what the people I know read it. The thing about the sellout that I will say in its credit, if you if you haven't read it, is it 
does this stuff, but turns it to sort of even higher stakes, mm. like kind of goes to 11. It's not a spoiler to say. I think it like opens with the main character in the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh. Um, I think that it's valuable to read these books. I just, I think I need a break before I read another baby. Thankfully, we'll have another 15 year break. <laughs> it's true. I will give it, this was about a two and a half for me, just because it seems to be mostly about my sort of like not loving the style very much. I'm going to round it up to a three star and <laughs> I might put this one in a little free library. Ooh. Though it has a big mm-hmm. used sticker on the back from <laughs> when I bought it from that college bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Toby, do you have any facts on Paul Beatty? So, Paul Beatty. Paul Beatty was born on June 9th, 1962. Cool. Cool. He's an American author and associate professor of writing at Columbia University. Heard of it? Heard of it. In 2016, he won the National Books Critics Circle Award and the Booker Prize for his novel, The Sellout, which we've been talking about. Uh, fun fact, that was the first time a writer from the United States was honored with the man Booker. Wow. He was born in Los Angeles, California. Um, He got his MFA in creative writing from Brooklyn College and an MA degree in psychology from Boston University. He is currently married to filmmaker Althea Waslow. Um, So Beatty was a uh, well-celebrated poet before he turned to writing novels. In 1990, he was crowned the first ever Grand Poetry Slam champion of the New Yorican Poets Cafe. One of the prizes for winning the championship was a book deal that resulted in his first volume of poetry, Big Bank, Take Little Bank, published in 1991. You know, that kind of tracks with the the quote that we had. It is kind of poetic. Yeah, his writing is super poetic. Um, He had another book of poetry, Joker, Joker, Deuce, in 94. He had appearances performing his poetry on MTV and PBS. Uh, In 93, he was awarded a grant from the Foundation for Contemporary Arts Grants to Artists Award. So he had a lot of success as a poet. Then he published The White Boy Shuffle in 1996. Generally, it was quite liked. Uh, His second novel, Tough, came out in 2000, again to positive reviews. And he kept working. He edited some anthologies. Um, He came out with another book called Slumberland in 2008. And then The Big Breaks, The Big Deal, 2015, The Sellout. Um, the sellout smash hit. He wins many, many prizes for it. Becomes maybe not a household name, but the fairly famous person he is today. But this is the one line logline. In his 2015 novel, The Sellout, Beatty chronicles an urban farmer who tries to spearhead a revitalization of slavery and segregation in a fictional Los Angeles neighborhood. Wow. OK, so, that's interesting. There you go. Even that is not really accurate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's fine. It's true. <laughs> that is objectively not what happens in the book. To a certain degree. I was going to say, sounds provocative. <laughs> I'm interested. <laughs> um, the rest of this is from an interview with The Guardian. The interviewer is Kate Calloway. Um, it was really not possible to find interviews about uh, Andrew's particular book. So this is an interview that he did around the time when he was blowing up for the sellout. But it's about his, you know, philosophy and life perspective. So I think it applies. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Jeez. You're so defensive. <laughs> Uh, Kate says, I was affected by what you said when you received the Booker Prize. You were visibly moved yourself about writing having given you a life. And Beatty replies, I am fortunate in having found something I enjoy, even though I hate doing it, too. Writing is a struggle full of weird contradictions. Kate continues, as a satirist, do you think there is anything that ought to be satire proof? And Beatty replies, no, but I don't think of myself as a satirist. I don't know what the word would be. It's somebody else's job to find it. I thought that was clever. He's very clever. And she says, I have watched you in interviews flinching at questions. And he says, I flinch at everything. <laughs> uh, you teach creative writing at Columbia and have said you tell students they need to aim to be unique. Isn't that a recipe for dangerous artificiality? And he responds, the books that stick are the books that are unique. I don't see how that is dangerous. Students have to distill from inspiration, and that takes time. It is tough. Tough. That's the name of the book. And then he says, like my novel. No. I just imagine like taking a writing class from this professor and you're reading your piece out loud and he's constantly flinching. Like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) I I flinch at everything, especially my students. Um, Kate asks, is there a lot of heartbreak? And Beatty responds, yes, but heartbreak is a part of doing anything you want to do. I'm hard on students. They made me teach a satire class. I gave students books that violated the rules. People look for secrets and keys. I want to show them there is no one way to do stuff. I tell them to distinguish between being an author and being a writer. 
I have a friend who is a philosopher. I asked him what it was about philosophy that appealed. He went, oh, you know, it just sounds cool. Something to tell people in bars. He's a good philosopher and loves it. But that was part of the allure. Um, she says, you started studying psychology. What has that contributed to your writing? And Beatty responds, it helped shape how I see the world and helped develop an awareness of the notion that what you think is there isn't there. To be honest, his responses in many of his interviews are kind of I was going to say, yeah. And short. Yeah. You know, you have to get out of them what you can get out of them. And Kate mentions this right now. She says, you are wary of other people's questions. What questions do you ask yourself? And Beatty responds, I don't ask myself big questions. (laughs) (laughs) I have a friend who is struggling saying, I don't know why I'm here. What is the purpose? And I said, there is no purpose. If there was a purpose, then I would be frozen. Um, And then it it seems like Kate starts to reach a little bit. She goes to, do you worry about mortality? And Patey responds, I've always been pretty old. This guy sounds like Yoda or something. (laughs) He's really fencing back with her. And then this is the final question. Kate kind of has had it. And she says, the phrase you've used most in our conversation is, I don't know. And there's no question after that. And Patey says, if I had a mantra, I don't know would be it. Except it is not a question. Can we put a question mark at the end? Yeah. Okay, Paul. <laughs> I, to be fair, I think he he's has fun in interviews. He definitely like enjoys fencing with interviewers. There's an incident where he was being interviewed by a guy who asked him a super racist question and got like torn apart on stage by him justifiably. So I think he kind of has fun fencing with interviewers. So it seems like it's all in good fun. That's cool. that's Paul Beatty. Awesome. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, interesting facts, Toby. Thank you for that. And thank you for a review, Andrew. So that is Tough by Paul Beatty. Three stars. Three stars. Well, that review was certainly enervating. It filled me with energy. You could say it was electrifying. (laughs) Bailey, you read a book this week or what? (laughs) That was excellent, Toby. Great job. Yes, I did. I read the book Electra by Jennifer Saint. Electra. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Are any of you guys familiar with um, the myth of Electra? Hand in mm, air. No. Yeah. It's about Daredevil's girlfriend, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so this is all to say that I thought I was pretty familiar. As I said before in the last podcast, I was in the play, Electra. So (laughs) I should remember it, but I don't know how well I remember it because that was college. And so if you had to put me on the spot and be like, tell me the myth right now, I'd be like, "Uh, Electra complex and then be done. Forget everything you thought you knew about Electra. Done. Like I said, with the Electra complex, what people generally think of when they think of this story, I think, is that it's parallel to Oedipus, where instead of killing your father and marrying your mother, Electra loves her father and avenges his death by killing her mother. Okay. Hmm. I have the story right in my head, which makes me feel somewhat smart. Um, So this book is in the same way that Madeline Miller's um, book, Circe and the Song of Achilles. It's a retelling of Electra. It's not in the modern world or anything. It's still in Greece during the Trojan War, but it's just told with modern prose and uh, humanizing of the characters. It follows not just Electra, which most of the stories do with her as the protagonist, but it follows three women. Electra, her mother. Okay, no, I don't want to be Hilaria Baldwin over here, but I only know how to pronounce her name in French. How do you say uh, it? Clytemnestra. Clytemnestra. Okay. In French, you'd say Clytemnestra. Okay. Stra- you had to get it out, didn't you? I did. I did. Andrew gave you an out and you still went there. <laughs> I still went there. Um, and then the third person is Cassandra. She is a princess of Troy um, and she is a person on the ground in Troy who can uh, witness and attest to the Trojan War. And then she comes into the story near the end. Um Cassandra is notable for um, the god Apollo has cursed her with the ability to see the future, but no one will believe her prophecies. She's really trying. She's like, guys, this Trojan horse is filled with Greeks. And they're like, Cassandra, stop. We're bringing in this (laughs) sweet gift of a Trojan horse, etc. So we follow these three perspectives. Each chapter switches between and... It's well written. The pace is really strong at first. Um, It's actually very similar length to your book, Andrew. It's 280 pages. And it doesn't feel like that at first. We're going through. I'm interested in the characters. I'm getting into the setting. As it continues, it gets repetitive. But I think in the same way that Beatty had a purpose to it, it's clear to me that Jennifer Saint has a purpose to the repetition. Whereas I had learned the story of Electra as Electra is 
the heroine who is bringing truth to light with the name Electra, like bringing light to the truth, bringing it out. But in this book, it's more about revenge and the futility of revenge. So this person killed this person in my life, so then I'm gonna kill them, and then somebody's mad about that killing, so they wanna kill them, and it just keeps going and going and going and cycling. So it's less about Mm. truth and more about violence. Um, Jennifer Saint made some interesting changes to the story as I remember it. Again, I don't remember it all that well. An example being the way I read it before was that Cletum, sorry, Clytemnestra. Clytemnestra. (laughs) (laughs) You can just call her Clyde. In the story I knew, she kills her husband Agamemnon when Electra is not in Mycenae. She's somewhere else. But in here... um, Clytemnestra is trying to protect Electra, so she like imprisons her and keeps her away from her father, but she is there and just can't stop the murder. Things like that follow more logically, I think. It's like, okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> Spoiler alert for the Iliad. That's the thing. As I'm telling this, like, I don't know. There, There is spoilers, but is this a story that people know? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I know why Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon. Your correspondent up here in Northern California knows nothing. I'm just imagining Jennifer Garner doing all these things. Great. Okay. Yeah, Billy, some of us didn't know that there were, tro- that there were Trojans in that horse. Ooh, spoiler. Well, it was Greeks in <laughs> the horse. Well, there were the horse. Greeks in the horse. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh. oh. So I'll give you a ex- little example of the writing. Um, and this shows what I think is the best part of the book, which is the humanization of these women. And it completely turned it on its head for me in terms of who was good and who was bad. Um, you know, all of the characters are morally gray, but I had always thought of it as Clytemnestra was the bad one. Like she was kind of like an evil queen. Like a Maleficent. Yeah, like yeah. took this lover who was her husband's enemy while he was off in Troy and he comes home and she kills him, etc. cetera. So like, so when I was in the play and I was playing her, like I was like, this is fun. I get to be sort of the villainous. And then Electra is the heroine. In this book, Clytemnestra is very much the most understandable, sympathetic character. And Electra is kind of an annoying kid that's like, clearly you don't get it. Stop it. No, no. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because I think it just depends on what your first exposure to the story is. Because I watched that like Helen of Troy miniseries, mm-hmm. and that one you leave, you're on Clytemnestra's side and you hate Agamemnon. Or if you watch Troy, I feel like you probably hate Agamemnon too. So like, it depends on your, your way in. But if you were in the play where you, you the object was to kill Clytemnestra, I guess that would change your view. Well, and if you're following Elector who loves Agamemnon, then you're less sympathetic. But yeah, Agamemnon is a big jerk. I was gonna say, Agamemnon comes off bad in a lot of things. For context, in the Helen of Troy miniseries, he's played by Rufus Sewell, who has never played <laughs> A good guy. <laughs> and in, in movies played by Brian Cox. Wasn't he in The Holiday? Was he a good guy in that? Yeah, he's a bad guy in oh. The Holiday. <laughs> oh, poor guy. Well, actually, I think he's the lead of that Agatha Christie t- miniseries on, on Amazon where he's the, the protagonist. He's the husband of the ambassador. Let's talk about Rufus Sewell for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're Rufus Sewell podcast now. Okay. Sewell's rules. Um. <laughs> I feel like I've already kind of spoiled a lot of the story in the same way that you would spoil the movie Titanic and, you know, you know, the ship goes down. What? Um, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> so, you know, if if you don't want it spoiled and this sounds interesting to you, just read the book. But I will just say for context, part of the story is that Agamemnon <laughs> tricks Clytemnestra to bring their oldest daughter, who's only 14, to the front. And he's like, she's going to marry Achilles. And so they get ready to get married. And instead, Agamemnon is there at the altar with a knife and he slits her throat to get fair winds. So like he sacrifices his daughter to Artemis so that the wind will blow and they can go to Troy. Right. This is Iphigenia. Oh, yes. Yes. That's her name. Uh, And so in other stories I'd read, that was just kind of like a fact that had happened. And some of the myths even switch it out so that he doesn't actually kill her like she's switched and turns into a deer and so she's actually safe but in this book it very much happens and it's very traumatic and so you're on Clytemestra's side you're like what just happened I gotta get revenge on this guy this is so messed up (sighs) so this is a quote from Clytemestra's um, perspective she has gone from being completely devastated by her daughter's murder to kind of trying to take revenge and taking over Mycenae as as the ruler okay so Clytemestra says 
No one wants to be the one to face Agamemnon in his return and explain to our furious king why his riches have been plundered and his power squandered while he was away. They were glad to have someone willing to take the blame. And I was glad, so passionately grateful, to have problems before me that had solutions, to set my mind on something with a purpose and an answer, anything to stop it wandering down dark and winding tunnels to a place I could never reach in search of something I could never have. So instead of like she is wants to grab the power it's like she's taking the power of being the leader to distract herself from her trauma and upset yeah. about mm. her daughter's murder um so all this to say i enjoyed it it did get repetitive near the end i would say it's between a three and a four for me i think the expectations are very high when you're going for madeline miller mm. and do i think it's as good as cersei and song achilles no do i think it's pretty good and, and effective in what it sets out to do yeah so i between three and four, I'll give her a four. Why not? Nice. Um, go <laughs> ladies. Um, so yeah, so I, I enjoyed this book. I don't know if I would keep it or read it again, but if you're interested in this world, like clearly me and Andrew are, I would recommend it. Four stars. Woot. Woot. Oh, Rufus Sewell was Hamilton oh my and gosh. John Adams. Well, Toby, you clearly don't know your Greek mythology, but do you know any facts about Jennifer Sant? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jennifer Saint, uh, you know, there's not much online about her. She um, is not one of the huger authors that we've done for this podcast. So we have a short little bio from her website. And then we're going to um, have an excerpt from an interview with uh, the Chicago Review of Books. So here's her bio. Jennifer Saint grew up reading Greek mythology and was always drawn to the untold stories hidden within the myths. After 13 years as a high school English teacher, she wrote Ariadne, which tells legend of Theseus and the Minotaur from the perspective of Ariadne, the woman who made it happen. Jennifer Saint is now a full-time author living in Yorkshire, England with her husband and two children. Both Ariadne and Electra are Sunday Times bestsellers. I think they came out pretty clo- in close succession too. I feel like they were like, we need more books. What else you got? Ariadne? Okay, uh, try Electra. <laughs> well, interesting you say that. Uh, this is an interview with Chicago Review of Books. The interviewer is Greer McAllister. Greer says... Uh, One of the things I love most about both your previous book, Ariadne, and this one, Electra, is that the title character isn't the only one whose perspective we get to see. Electra's name is on the cover, but Clytemnestra and Cassandra also get to say their piece. Jennifer answers, I always intended to have all three women as narrators, but their roles definitely evolved a lot over the course of writing it. I started with Clytemnestra, what happens to her when her daughter Iphigenia is promised in marriage to Achilles, is a moment in Greek mythology that always resonated very powerfully with me from the first time I read it as a child. I had always wanted to tell her side of that story. Cassandra is also a mythological figure who drew so much of my curiosity and sympathy. In today's world, the idea of someone who can see impending disaster but isn't believed when she tries to warn everyone about it felt so tragically relevant. I also wanted to include the story of Troy, a subject of endless fascination and appeal for anyone with even a fleeting interest in classics, but I wanted to see it from inside the besieged city rather than from the perspective of the Greek camps, which is how it's so often presented. Throughout the writing process, it was Electra who grew and developed the most. She was certainly the most challenging character to understand, and it took much longer for me to find her voice. That's pretty accurate. Electra is definitely the hardest to sympathize with in this book, but not the case otherwise, so that makes it interesting. Mm. Ka-chow. Greer McAllister asks, how closely do you stick to your sources when writing a novel? Given that you studied classical literature in your university years, I'd assume you're familiar with many different versions of the same myths as told in epic poetry and plays and depicted in ancient art and artifacts. Jennifer answers, this is a myth with a wealth of sources to draw from, and I absolutely started with the Oresteia. Prologue of the novel is the lighting of the beacons to signal the fall of Troy, which is how the first play in the trilogy, Agamemnon, begins. I still remember reading that scene in the classroom when I was 17 and how it gave me chills. It's so atmospheric. And the way the playwright uses the motif of dark and light was something I wanted to emulate in this novel too. However, there are many more inspirations. I took ideas from other plays such as Euripides' Electra, Sophocles' Electra, and keen-eyed readers will spot moments from the Iliad and the Odyssey too, like Bailey did. She says that. It's weird. I don't think you have to be that keen. They literally follow the Trojan War, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Youch. She just complimented you. Um, I always search out artwork relating to the myths, paintings, vases, and statues, which give me a strong sense of what I want to create visually, as well as giving hints about the characters and their situations. And the ruins and artifacts are invaluable. The stone lionesses at the gate to the Mycenaean palace are so wonderfully symbolic, and so they feature in the novel, too. But did you watch Brad Pitt's Troy? (laughs) (laughs) But did you know that Rufus Sewell was also in Gladiator? No. 
Oh, oops. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> and a final question that Bailey might be interested in. I have to ask what readers and fans want to know. What's next for you? Do you have another figure or figures from myth in mind? Jennifer answers, I have recently finished the first draft of my third book, and I can reveal that it is about Atalanta, the only woman to join Jason and the Argonauts on their quest for the Golden Fleece. Atalanta is a brilliant heroine. She's bold, fearless, and determined to create her own legend in a world dominated by male heroes. Writing her story has been a real joy. Do you think Madeline Miller just like throwing a book across the room? I mean, <laughs> I had that draft. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So that is Electra by Jennifer Saint. Four stars. Four stars. Four stars. Andrew, I know you know a lot about Greek myths and so do I. So I'm hoping that the game is about Greek myths so we can defeat Toby. But anyway, do you have a game this week? I'm hoping it's not. <laughs> Well, I have some bad news, Toby. (laughs) (laughs) Your comfort level with Greek myths. And so this uh, could be a washout for you, but I have uh, changed the scoring system slightly and hopefully it'll even it out a little bit. Okay. Well, the name of the game is Mythbusters TM. Ooh. (laughs) Uh, But the way this game is going to work is I have a list of seven Greek monsters and or figures who are not the main gods and a little bit of a description about them. And what I want you to do is with just the name of that monster, describe what it is, what it does. What you can do when I give you the name of your monster, you can assign a points value to how comfortable you are with it. (laughs) And you can only get up to that thing. So if I gave you one that you were super confident about, you might say, I can get five points worth of an answer on this Mm -hmm. and really go into detail. But if you do not live up to that, you get zero points. Andrew, this sounds like an amazing game. Given the insane advantage that Bailey has, I would like to propose something unorthodox. Mm. I would like to draft Dylan onto my team and we play together against Ooh. Bailey. I accept the terms. <laughs> Listen to the condescension in her voice. Wow. <laughs> I was going to put it to Bailey, but if you're fine with this, all right. <laughs> team Toby and Dylan. Wait, can I be on Bailey's team? <laughs> No. <laughs> no. Let's do this, Toby. Okay. Bailey, we're going to let you go first because you're so freaking confident. I'm kind of worried, though. Like, yeah, give her a hard one. Okay. Yeah, I am going to give her a harder one. Oh, God. Okay. What you know about Argus and how many points of po- do you think you can tell me about Argus? Um. Okay. You have to tell me the points first. I'm going to give it, I'm going to be conservative and give it three points. Okay, three points. Um, I believe Argus is the guy who's covered in eyes and he is a guard. Okay, that's a one and a half point answer for you, Bailey. Do you know any Ooh. other details about it? Um, mm, he was guarding someone or something in particular, but I know he was covered in eyes. <laughs> <laughs> he was guarding someone or something in particular. <laughs> Great. All right. So, Bailey, this is what happens if you say you're going to get a three-point answer. That was two details. You needed probably one more solid one to get three (gasps) points. You could have said that he's related to the myth of Io. Uh, Um, He's guarding Io at some point. Anywho, the main thing, if you had mentioned that he was related to the origin of peacocks, I would have given you all three points. Okay, but but did Toby or Dylan know that? Did Toby or Dylan know any of that? that, I, Irrelevant. I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, yeah, it's not it's not important. Yeah. So it's zero points for you, Bailey. All right, you guys now. All right, Dylan, here we go. This one, let's see if this one how this one goes. Cerberus. Come on. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Bailey is already angry about this. <laughs> okay, Dylan, I'm a, this is not our answer yet. I'm just gonna confer with Dylan. Yeah. Three headed. We need dog. to know the points first. We need to know the points oh, that's first. That's right, sorry. Uh, Dylan, how many points would you assign your knowledge of Cerberus? I'm gonna say at least a th- Three for me, maybe. Three? Although, I don't know. I, this is such crap. I, I mean, I know where he is. I know. I'm going to need to rush you here. How many points? How okay, many? okay, okay. okay. Uh, uh, three. Yeah. Let's just go for it. Yeah. Okay. Three. Okay. Well, three. you saw what happened last time. Someone thought they had three points. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Three-headed dog. Uh, serve, uh, I'm just conferring with Dylan. Yes. Uh, servant of Hades, or like uh, at least a consort of Hades. Yeah. Uh, I believe consort. he resides around <laughs> the river Styx. Yeah, and okay. he is one of Hercules' challenges, right? I believe he is, yes. Yeah. Okay, there's our answer. Those details are all correct. Yeah. And there's enough yeah. of them that I think I have to give it to them. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Him being one of Hercules' labors really does put it over the edge to a three-point answer upwards, for me. Failing upwards. They didn't even say that he guarded the underworld. They just said he's around the it's river implied. sticks. 
What? It's <laughs> sticks in the, He's a guard sticks dog. Sticks in the underworld. Right. I got three points. Bail, your turn. My turn. Charon. Oh. Ooh. Chiron? Nope. Charon. Oh. I'd actually know this one from the video game Hades. Oh. Can I steal? <gasps> I give it zero points, and I don't guess. <laughs> All right. Toby, do you want to take this answer? Yes. And then Bailey, I'll give you another one after. Okay. Cool. Okay. All right, Toby, how many points do you think you can do with Charon? I think I'm only going to do one because I only know one fact about him. I want to I want to say two. Okay. If, he, if he is who I'm thinking he is. Okay. Okay. All well, right. I hope Toby, you're right. Toby, so you go first. Two. Okay. Charon is the boatman that ferries souls on the river Styx. That is correct. What Do you have an additional detail? Because you're going for two points all of a sudden. That you pay him the uh, uh, two pieces of silver to get across? Mm. I think it might be gold, but, but you know, it's two coins. And where do those coins come from? If you tell me that, I will. Your eyes. Okay. Yeah, that's two points. Ah, oh, Dylan. All right. Bailey, you want to do Chiron, who's also on this list? You seem to be really <laughs> insistent that you knew what Chiron was. Oh, I'm in my head. I feel like I've completely forgotten everything. Okay, Chiron. <laughs> I feel defeated. Well, you shouldn't have dunked on Toby so much about his Greek mythology. <laughs> um, Chiron. How many points? One point. He's a leader of a place in Greece. Um, yeah, no, you'll, you'll take zero points. No, stop. Stop. You're oh, digging yourself no. deeper. <laughs> he's a son of Zeus? <laughs> he's a centaur who tutored a lot of heroes. Oh, and yeah. he's in the Percy Jackson. He's like the guy who runs Camp Half-Blood. Yeah. If that oh. helps. Yeah. He trained okay. Achilles. All right. Well, there's only two more <laughs> answers left. All right. Here uh, we go. I, Dylan, we're killing it. Five to zero. All right. Here you go. Pegasus. Come up. Oh, <laughs> sweet. All right, Dylan. I'm going to say I know a basic and, and a little bit extra. Uh, Yeah, I'm at the same. Okay. Let's say two. Let's We can gamble a little bit. Yeah. All right. Um, Pegasus is a winged horse, and he was Hercules' companion or steed nope. or... <laughs> nope. Well, in the movie. Yeah, if you're relying wait, on that, wait, 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 I don't wait, know wait. that you're going to get let's see if, Okay, let's wait, see if wait, Dylan wait. can save it, me then. Is it, is it too late to jump out to Bailey's team? <laughs> <laughs> wait, yeah, are we locked in another Hercules answer, or can I give the right one? <laughs> you can add another detail. We are one brain, so you can say, no, that's not right. No, and that's then not right. And have come out of our mouth. He's Perseus's horse. Yes. I am not going to give you guys two points. Wait, 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 wait no, 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 I, I, I know the other thing, too, that he is um, Zeus or Poseidon's <laughs> son. He's, oh, he's a son of one of the major gods? I think it's Zeus. No, no, Poseidon it's Poseidon. It's, sense, Poseidon. Right? it's Poseidon. Oh, okay, Poseidon. <laughs> I f- so yes, that's correct. If you yes! can name who his mother is, if you name who his mother is, I'll give you two points. But that was literally the speaking s- of throwing spaghetti at the wall. That was a whole Olive Garden thrown at the wall, and I'm not inclined to give you all the points for that. What? <laughs> a winged horse that Perseus rides? That's Poseidon's whatever. Who's his mom? And I'll give you the second point. The sea. <laughs> Poseidon is the god of the sea and also god of horses. He had an affair with Medusa and she was born ah. was born when his head was cut off, which is why you will receive zero points for this answer. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. You know what? I won't complain. <laughs> also, there are so many different versions of these stories that there was somebody at home being like, Andrew, you're completely wrong. <laughs> Anywho, Bailey, yeah. you're down five points. Uh, Can you give oh me Oh my goodness? Five point answer. About Chimera. Yeah. I mean, can you stitch it together with a bunch of other answers? Okay, Dylan. Shut up, Dylan. Dylan. Okay, um, I guess I have to go for six points, and I'm just going to talk a lot about the Chimera. (laughs) Chimera is a monster. He's one of the monsters, or she's one of the monsters that um, Hercules- Oh, already wrong. That Hercules has to defeat. She's made up of different parts, including a lion, I think like a lizard, and- Maybe an eagle. A witch in a wardrobe. Okay. And then she has a lot of different babies that are weird looking other monsters. Um, and Hercules kills her as one of his tasks um, to prove himself and then become immortal. Uh, you're not going to get six answers, six points for that. I'm so sorry. Oh. Chimera is also a word that people use today. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, History Channel. You sound like somebody uh, filling out a essay part of a test. That yeah, they did I need more for. words. I need more words. In conclusion. There are many things you could say about Chimera. <laughs> All right, Bailey, I'm sorry. If you hadn't, you know, been so confident and allowed Dylan and Toby to team up on you, you might have done better. But unfortunately, that was not a six-point answer. In fact, I don't think Chimera was killed by Hercules. And I think you're confusing Chimera with Echidna a little bit. Oh, oh. I could be. Yeah, Belepharon attached a lump of lead to the end of his spear and thrust it into the monster's mouth, okay. making it swallow the lead. But did she have weird babies? That's Echidna, and oh. Chimera is one of Echidna's children. All right, well... So it's, so, it's, so it's still wrong. But Toby and Dylan are winners. Congratulations. Five to zero. Yes. Amazing. Yes. This is my yes. greatest fear. We have a smash cut to their wedding photos where Dylan and I are staring <laughs> deep into each other's eyes. I really, you know, tried to fly too close to the sun. <laughs> Icarus. Well, I hope you had fun with that. Sorry it was a little more disorganized. I tried to improvise it to make it more even, and in the end, mistakes were made. I hated it. Uh, no, thank you for that game. Be careful what you wish for. Dylan, now it's your turn to come out of the chopped off head of Medusa. Um, it's time for you to come out and choose books at random from our shelf. It's time for the choosing. The choosing. The choosing. The choosing. I mean, Andrew, I know that that was very stressful for you, okay? But you're just going to have to keep it together, okay? I don't want to see no tears. Uh-oh. I don't want you to, number 16, Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Patton. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. We'll see how this one goes. This is a classic, but I don't know that a lot of people still read it. <laughs> so we'll see. All right. <laughs> All right, one of the more enigmatic book descriptions we've had. I know I don't know too much about it, I'll be honest. Sweet. And Bailey, I mean, the same goes for you, too, because I saw that even though Andrew was weeping over there, mm-hmm. I did notice that you were getting a little choked up, you were getting a little misty. Mm-hmm. You were getting a little number 73, Misty of Cinco Teague by Marguerite Henry. This was fun. This is like a kid's book in the vein of like Black Beauty that my mom, it was her copy from when she was a kid in like the 50s, 60s. And I still have it. And I I think it might be the (laughs) oldest book on my shelf. Horse book, horse book. Horse book, horse girl. So I'm excited. Okay, cool. Oh, wow. We're living the horse life. There we go. Um, Okay. So that means in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading Misty of Cinco Teague by Marguerite Henry and Toby is reading Trust by Hernan Diaz. What a mix that'll be. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the to read list if you'd like to get in contact with us you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com follow us on goodreads instagram and the story graph at the to read list podcast and if you like what you heard and you want to help us out a great way to do that is to go to your podcatcher of choice and leave us a rating and a review we encourage you to pick all five stars like all five heads of a greek monster when put together they're the most powerful mm. yes and if you are friends with a hero of legend such as Achilles. Wow, I don't know where I was going with this. Anyway, <laughs> tell your friends about this podcast. It really helps spread awareness. And, uh, you know, you really trust uh, when your friend tells you to check something out. So if you know bookish people and you think they'd like it, please tell them about this podcast. Don't tell them how badly I did on that game. Thanks to Toby. Yeah, and- <laughs> this episode in particular. <laughs> Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books. books.